Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. All right, listeners, welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt, how are you doing this beautiful Friday afternoon? I'm doing my very best. How are you? I'm doing well. It's, uh, you know, I say beautiful afternoon this morning when I woke up, it was, uh, it was sunny and nice. I think it was like 59 degrees and so I went outside and had a nice cup of coffee and it was, uh, I felt like I won the morning, even though I really didn't do anything, uh, <laughs> going outside with my son and having him sit on my lap while he tried to dip his hand in my coffee was, uh, certainly enjoyable. I got some vitamin D and I was ready to get back to my, uh, chair that I've been sitting on for the last 30 days. So it's been good. <laughs> so, uh, Say but it anyway, like you mean it, Justin. yeah, right. I do. No, it's, uh, <laughs> All things considering, you know, we're just continuing to grind our way through this and, um, you know, we're continuing to record, which is great and uh, appreciate all the support out there. Um, and again, if you want to further support the show, I please uh, like the episode, share them, um, you know, and if you haven't yet, please write a review. That certainly helps us out on the support side. Uh, and Matt, what about you, man? How, how have things been? You know, we, we had the virtual draft last night for football. Um, you know, did you get a chance to watch it on your phone or does that even interest you for the NFL? I was interested. I think I've learned the lesson that I really haven't been following college football in the past few years. Well, right. for a while now. And the reason when I moved overseas, I kind of just, you couldn't even watch those games. You were lucky to get an NFL. Game. Yeah. And so I haven't been great about tracking all the players. Um, although I have a friend who's a pretty big Dolphins fan. And so um, I always have, you know, snarky comments, you know, when it, you know, how long until Tua's leg falls off or, you know, <laughs> things like that, that, uh, I, I at least want to get a few punches in here and there. Yeah. Um, so I did enough research to be able to do that, but, um, didn't follow it as closely as I expected, even though I think most of it sort of played out people thought, I mean, mm. but I, I monitored it over my phone, but I was busy doing other yeah yeah no i hear you so obviously with down here um around texas louisiana of course lsu's quarterback burrows i don't even know where he went do you do you recall yeah he went to the Bengals. the Bengals. that's right okay and he's from ohio so this is like you know that's pretty big probably you know the two best opportunities for him you know if you work for the saints i mean you just imagine how nuts that would be yeah um and then the you know the Bengals to have a you know, Ohio kid come back. I think that's, uh, you know, hopefully their organization can get it together to make them successful. Right. But we shall see. Yeah, no, it certainly adds to a, to a very unique and compelling story that he's already has. So, uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll see how sports develop over time and, uh, how this is going to be affected. You know, if there's going to be like every fourth seat, will have a person in it or <laughs> like how that looks, but um, you know, I, I was talking to someone before we get going. I know this is a drilling flu co- podcast, but I wanted to mention, uh, I didn't know this, but the Spanish flu that happened in 19, early 1900s, 1920 or something like that. 1918. Yeah. 1918. Uh, someone found pictures of baseball stadiums during the Spanish flu and each and every single person had face masks on. I didn't know that. Hmm. 
So uh, this is apparently cyclical, <laughs> which I don't know if we'll be in stadiums all together, but uh, the whole mask wearing thing apparently in the United States is, was something that happened quite a while ago, almost well, almost 100 years or a little over 100 years, I guess. But uh, nonetheless, I thought that was an interesting take. Um, let's talk drilling fluids, Matt, and more specific, more specifically, uh, for everyone out there that is aware of drilling fluids engineering, there's several tests that we do. And do those tests require certain pieces of equipment? So Matt, what piece of equipment and, and what test do you want to dive into today? I want to dive into the retort because trying to break down retort analysis to folks drives me nuts. And so I thought maybe we could clarify a few points, dig through it a bit. I mean, it's an easy test, but there's a lot of extrapolations from it that throw a lot of people off. Sure. So, I thought that would be a good conversation. Awesome. Well, uh, I think first and foremost, let's describe what, what does it mean to, to run a retort or AKA burn a retort? So I love, I, I mean, so probably the very first well I was sitting as a mud engineer on my own was outside of Opelousas, Louisiana. <laughs> um, and uh, I went to our field office in Lafayette to pick up the equipment. And we were pulling out the retort, and uh, the engineering manager out there goes, "This works just like your granddaddy's still," which <laughs> never got to run that through either of my grandfathers at the time when they were alive. Um, and I don't believe they were moonshiners, but I don't know. They lived pretty full lives. Who knows what what they bothered not to share with a little kid? You know, <laughs> right. I knew. Them. But uh, anyways, you know, the whole idea is to try and find out what the you know, liquid phases are of the mud and then what the solids are. And so, um, you know, as you described it, burning a retort, in essence, you try to evaporate the liquids and condense them and gather them. And whatever's left over was your solids. Um, and so uh, it seems pretty straightforward that you take those numbers, but then you take those numbers and you're trying to find out things like the well water ratio. You're trying to find out what your low gravity solids are. Um, and, you know, that's, that's probably the biggest one, right, is everybody will put a low gravity solids. Talk to any drilling engineer. You, you ask them, what do they look at on the report? You know, what are the, what are the first things they look at? And they almost always say, I check the gravity solids. Right. Um, and they know that that's, that's drilled solids typically, and that can affect drilling performance. And, and they know it also means money because you have to dilute them. You have to dilute them out. That's, you know, expensive. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's the grand picture of things is we're trying to get that information and, uh, we've got a fairly rudimentary instrument to do it. Right. Well, there's only one thing that I would argue with that, Matt, is, uh, you mentioned when drilling engineers look at the, the report, the first thing they look at is low gravity solids. Uh, I might say they look at the daily mud cost first and then the properties, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they don't care what the mud looks like. If it was expensive to get there, they're not going to be happy about that either. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, you know, I joke just being on the account management side. A lot of it, the, the, the um, you know, the questions are normally related to cost and then and then mud properties. But either way, I just had to chuckle. But you're, you're right. I mean, most people, including myself, you know, when I'm, you know, obviously you look at each property and and one property within it within a mud report doesn't tell the whole story, but your eyes naturally, you know, what are drawn to low gravity solids because it is extremely important. And if it, and if it gets away on you, it's a lot harder to treat than say all of a sudden your, your yield points down a couple of points or, um, 
your, I mean, any other, you know, whatever, any other property is typically can be treated in a timely manner versus low gravity solids oftentimes takes quite a bit. And there's a lot more to it to control it. You know, you've got your, you know, your surface equipment, you've got your dilution rates, um, you've got your you know, centrifuge backyard if you're running them. So there's a lot of factors that contribute and play into that uh, number. So which is why it's certainly important. Um, so Matt, you mentioned, you know, it gives you a solids breakdown or it gives you the percent solids, your oil and your water. Um, are retorts burned both in oil-based mud and water-based mud or just one or the other? Both. And, and I think, you know, the interesting thing is like, I think most of the time we're, we're used to running through that part, but you know, sometimes you may even have some oil. Sometimes people throw in a little bit of diesel and water-based mud for lubricity or whatever. A lot of yep. times we run lubricants in oil-based mud or water-based mud. And the retort will show that as, as oil content in many cases. So um, it, it still will show a little bit of oil. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's plenty to it. And, and, you know, when we get into the details, with water-based mud, there could also be some factors on salt content about some other things. That get yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, and, and the reason I asked that too, is because I remember, you know, when I went offshore for the first time, we were running water-based mud and, um, we were, uh, we were adding a mineral oil or like a synthetic, uh, to the water-based mud, which I had, that was the first time I had seen that. And yeah, it was interesting to run a retort and you could see it cause you basically, you know, measure your oil content and then <clears throat> make sure you maintain a certain percentage of oil in there. And then, um, actually when I was looking after rigs in the midcon. Uh, in the intermediate section, we would um, get up to 5% diesel in the fluid. And, um, you know, due to some certain performance factors that were noticed. But uh, yeah, it's in, in a water-based mud, you can certainly notice them. Or you may even pick up some oil from the formation. Oftentimes, you see a little bit of residual oil in there. And it's like, okay, well, you know, we've, interesting. We've, we've got some oil in the system from the formation. So, uh, but certainly it's, uh, you know, and then again, you know, with the direct emulsion, uh, when you run your retort, that's extremely important. And, and it's quite a bit different than your oil base. Cause it's flipped. Um, you obviously have a higher water content than oil content, but, uh, you know, every, every basically I'm going to getting at is every mud system requires you to, to, um, run a retort analysis on your drilling fluids. So, yeah. uh, moving on to, uh, the actual component side of it. I mean, I'm sure most people are wondering, well, how do you, t- you know, you're, you're burning mud or like, you know, I think it's probably, uh, it can, can be a little confusing. So how would you describe the setup and the components that are used to run this, uh, this test? So, yeah, I guess the, the terminology is, I always get mixed up on this. So I, I looked up the API procedure just to make sure I was using the right buzzwords. Um, but uh, basically, you know, we start with an assembly that has uh, a little cup, or I always, always call it a cell, um, with a lid and then um, a, a body to it that threaded onto it. And so the cup is the important part in as much as it has a very, it's as a set volume. So it could be 10 mils, 20 mils, or 50 mils are the most common sizes. And you're, you need to know that volume because all of your math is saying, I have this much volume and then I'm going to subtract saying, you know, for example, if I have this much liquid showing up uh, after running the retour, whatever volume that cell is minus that liquid is how many solids I have. So just right. process of deduction, right? Um, so uh, anyways, you take the mud, you, you put it in that cup, you put the lid on, you don't want any air in there, um, make sure it's nice and level, the, the lid has a hole in it everything's uh, you know 
nice and flush there. And you'll actually take the, um, the body, as they call it, you'll stick the, uh, the, uh, you'll stick steel wool up there. And the idea of the steel wool is when I do actually heat everything up and try to evaporate it, solids will find their way through, you know, out of the cup. And I don't want them going into going all the way up and getting condensed or, or finding their way further down. So steel wool is there to trap that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I screw that, that cup into that body. It's got steel wool that's acting as a filter. And then I take that whole little um, setup and I'll actually, there's a little threaded end and I'll attach the condenser to it. And the condenser is exactly as it sounds. It's basically a, an area where it can allow the evaporated fluid to cool. Um, and it will drip down into a receiver. Um, a lot of people call the receiver the J2. It's that glass tube that has normally it's got percentages. Uh, and, and so that goes with whatever size cup you're, you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you use a graduated cylinder, but you need to do some mathematical conversions to figure out what percentage by volume that is relative to cup size. Question. Um, yes. Are you a stuffer or are you just a lightly fluffer with the steel wool? Uh, I'm pretty aggressive with it. Um, <laughs> okay. I I everyone say, has like, their know, own way of doing it. So I always laugh. <laughs> well, I'm sufficiently terrified of, I like when I, when I went to mud school the, the, and we mentioned safety a little bit later here in, in our notes, but, uh, they took us through and had these pictures of retorts blowing up and everything. And so I was always exceedingly paranoid of the idea of anything getting that through that steel wool and working its way up into that valve stem and building up and then eventually blowing up and um, oh boy, you know, no. injuring myself or a whole group of people. So yeah, steel wool was cheap and I wasn't shy about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is always interesting after making relief. Um, you know, if people were in a rush or people were busy, I mean, normally you do your, relief of favor and clean all your mud equipment but um there's times where you know sometimes you forget or whatever but you always sometimes you don't screw it you may have half a piece of steel wool in there or you may have like a few strands of it and um yeah it's just it's it's interesting for all the mud engineers out there that you know are listening you'll appreciate it but uh, everyone else is probably wondering why are you talking about it but i just thought i would ask um matt what you described the different volumes of cylinders um or different sizes of retorts, you said 10, 20, 50. Do you mind describing why you'd pick one versus the other or what, what you could expect the difference to be? Sure. Um, so 10 mil, I think is great for training people in a mud lab for a mud report that will never go. Um, the, the problem <laughs> is the bigger the volume minimizes the propagation of air, which is one of the biggest problems is you are extrapolating 350 mils is in effect a, a barrel, a lab barrel. So when I have 10, I'm multiplying times 35. When I have 20, I cut that in half. When I have 50, it's times seven. So 50 mils are generally far more accurate. Um, 20 is a pretty safe compromise. If somebody's running a 10 and they have worried that the error band is so wide, I don't really trust it. Mm-hmm. But the other part is if these are big, um, there are concerns because those valve stems are big enough that you could inadvertently have cuttings work their way into that valve stem and it's perfect and plug it. Mm. Um, the API method actually says to get your mud by pouring it over the marsh funnel uh, so that you are not actually risking 
um, you know, having large solids. In. Yeah. Um, and the other part is you're supposed to clean this stuff, right? Um, there's that little T drill that can help you, you know, keep that stuff clear. But um, so 20 to 50 is, is probably the most practical. Some, uh, some customers we have insist on 50s and, and it is going to be more accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just, they're, they're big. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, ultimately, in, in what you're basically what I'm getting at is uh, the greater the sample size, the less chance for, for margin of error, um, which, you know, obviously if you could test the whole system, that'd be great. But um, one of the things too, is, you know, you do find like, say you're doing drive-by work. Um, a lot of it is, it's very time consuming to run a 50 mil versus a 10 mil, that 10 mil will heat up pretty quick and you can get yeah. your numbers. So, um, you know, that that's one thing too, to consider if you're out there and you're, you know, say you're drive by hand and you're thinking, Oh, I should be, you know, I should start running at 50 mil. I mean, granted, I'm sure you're on location for more than 20 minutes, but, uh, and they're quite a bit bigger and just more, a little more heavy duty than the 10 mil, the 10 mil, you can pretty much throw, you know, in a fanny pack if you wanted to the old mud engineer fanny pack. Uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> I've never had one. Uh, but anyway, I, I just wanted to add to that, um, you know, 50 mils and, 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 and you know, with three torts too, and I, we may get into this, um, but it, a lot of times you can use retorts on, uh, to calculate your mud on cuttings. And, uh, in order to do that, uh, I remember when I was running synthetic up in the Northeast or our version of synthetic, um, we were having to run mud on cuttings analyses. And that was the first time I had used a 50 mil retort and, um, you know, so that that's, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you could run a mud on cuttings with twenties, but, uh, I know most of the time, most of the math is based off the 50 and so on and so forth. But, uh, yeah. So the 50 mil is certainly the way to go in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'll just add for mud on cuttings. Uh, it's, it's probably the only way I would go, uh, yeah. with respect to mud on cuttings. So 50 is just, uh, once again, you get the propagation of error and, for mud on cuttings, you're using smaller volumes. Um, I, w- I wouldn't trust a 20, uh, you know, and I think that's why some of our, some customers actually require the 50 out there is they want to have the option and, and make sure it's reliable. Uh, yep. So very good point, Justin. Ah, thank you, sir. Sometimes I come up with them. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about, um, I mean, you've basically described the test as well. So, you, you know, you, we described the components, um, you know, how, how would you then, uh, are, is there anything else that you'd like to add with regards to actually doing the test? I mean, I think, you know, okay. So I'd add that condenser is obviously, it doesn't go in the heater jacket. So the heater jacket's kind of set up. So the cell sits in, it's fully insulated. There's a lid you flip on it. And the only thing that can kind of stick out is the stem from uh, the, the body and the condenser is ambient conditions. And so it can, the evaporated material can come across, go to the condenser and drip into uh, you know, an area that's in ambient temperature relatively so. Mm-hmm. Uh, there actually isn't a set temperature to run the test. Uh, it, API says high enough that things evaporate, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, it does say to run the test for a minimum of one hour. And I'm going to be real honest with you. I don't know if I knew that or did that. Um, <laughs> and, but, but you know how a mud check goes, though, right? Like, you, you have that whole sequence of how you're doing things. And typically the retort is one of the first things I throw in. And, you know, when everything looks pretty steady, that's when I take my reading. But I don't think I've ever been, oh, you know, because, you know, when I was blown and going, I could probably, I could probably do a whole bunch check in 45 minutes. That's not crazy, right? Yeah. Um, 
And, and so like, I don't know if I waited the extra time. It was always get the high temp going, get the reflow going, because everything else in between you can kind of do what you're waiting for that stuff to heat up and finish up. Well, so, well, I'll supplement, you know, <laughs> to, to, to qualify the, ver- the way you were doing yours. Um, similarly for myself, first thing I do is throw the retort on, do all my mud checks. And then I had, a, you know, I'd done it enough times that I knew once I did X, Y, Z and came back to it, that was the final reading. Well, oftentimes I would leave it on. And then an hour later I would look and just out of, you know, just to satisfy my curiosity, I would look and see what the numbers read and they were the same. So yeah, there, there was that, you know, it's because right. It's, it's not like when the, when you check your retort, then all of a sudden you unplug it and it, it cools down magically. Like that cell is hot, a hot son of a gun for a long time. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, j- just to kind of give some perspective on that, it's, there are certain like an hour is a good time, but um, sometimes yeah, and, and know, that's a, a coverall, right? But I I have a hard time imagining anything. So the the retort heats up to the limit is at nine hundred and thirty degrees Fahrenheit. We are not talking about a low temperature, right. um, and so once it gets to temperature and it's pretty well insulated and everything, an hour should be more than enough, which I think is the intent of the procedure. Wait an hour and there's no way. You can stay. But right. guess what? You know your mud, you know your trends. It shouldn't shock you that you can get that done a little faster. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think I should go too far into the penalty box of that, but I thought it was an interesting point. Yeah, no, that's yeah. exactly right. So uh, so here we have this apparatus. We've got, you know, all of a sudden things heat up. Everything starts to smell funky. Um, and then all of a sudden you start seeing drips come out of the end of that, uh, you know, that little, I don't know. Not flow line, but what, that condenser is that what you're calling yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So anyway, liquid starts falling into that, and then you start seeing in your graduated cylinder or the J tube, you start seeing this fluid start to accumulate, um, which is typically considered the readout. So Matt, how would you describe with the readout and, and what that looks like, and and kind of you know maybe like starting from the the bottom, working your way up, what what series of fluids you might see? So. Um you know, when we think about it and, you know, in the receiver, oil floats on top of water, we hope. Um, and so uh, you start seeing water and then you'd see oil floating on top of that. And, you'd, you know, there's, there's probably a little bit of a, a, an intermediate phase, but not too much of one. Um, and, and sometimes you'll even see like a darker yellow phase, lighter yellow phase. You know, interesting even with diesel mud is it doesn't keep its pink color to burn off the retort. Right. Um, but, why is uh, that? Do you know? Do you know why that is? It's a because that's just a dye that doesn't hold up that temperature. Okay. Um, Makes sense. So, I think uh, you know. So, so we go and read, and, and we read what's called the bottom of the meniscus, or that little, you know, bubble thing, for lack of a better description. We're looking through glass. Yeah. Um, and and the trick is, so you, you know, first you look at your your total liquids, right, and whatever percentage that is. You look at, and then you've got to make the call where you're at between that oil and that water. So you can do the math and say it's this much percent oil, this much percent water. And important to remember, that's water. That is not brine. So when you evaporate this, that brine, the salt is actually going to probably precipitate off in the steel wool as it goes. Mm-hmm. So you, that's your oil-water ratio. But you'll go back from your chloride titration and figure out what your salinity is, knowing right. that volume of water. Um, 
let's see what else. So we know that we know how much volume was in the actual cell. So uh, we subtract the cell volume minus those liquids, and we say that much must be solids. Now those solids could be low gravity solids, but they could also be bayrite. Be you know you name it. Yeah. And so there's a there's a mathematical mass balancing that you've got to work out. And this this is basically saying okay. I took a mud weight and I have an idea what that is. So if my mud weight is nine pound or whatever, what is 20 milliliters of nine pound bucket? What is that weigh, right, in grams? What is the specific gravity of my base oil? And knowing how much base oil I have, what is that weight in grams? Knowing my salt, you know, and how much that should weigh, what is that weight in grams? Um, and so I start working my way backwards and I end up with a specific gravity of some number, let's say it's, you know, 3.5 or something. Yeah. And now I'm going to say, okay, there's a ratio between these two. One of them is my low gravity solids and one of them is my favorite, right? So you have high gravity, low gravity solids. And you basically get the percentage by determining that ratio. I'm running 4-1 Bayrite. And, um, you know, most everybody, and I'll tell them why they're all wrong, uses 2.6 or... Uh, low gravity solids. And so, you know, specific gravity of 4.1 times X plus specific gravity of 2.6 times Y equals that 3.5, whatever that intermediate number is. And that's how you get your, fi your final percentage of low gravity solids your high gravity solids. So it's a mathematical interpretation. Okay. And that's a big deal because I want you to think about all of the error that you can introduce there. All right. Um, if I don't call my chloride endpoint consistently, or you know, I could you know plus or minus ten thousand, even even you know with a accurate reading, um, you know the the standard error is, is plus or minus ten thousand, right? Um, uh, then you know thinking about all these other things, uh, and so it, even you know diesel, a specific gravity of diesel, you know. You could a diesel could range from 0.82 to 0.88. You sort of just have to settle on something that's relatively consistent. That's a pretty big swing. Um, hmm. And then on the low gravity solids end of things, you know, one of the issues we had when we were drilling with unmated, unweighted muds and horizontals with an unweighted oil-based mud is we kept getting negative numbers for low gravity solids and couldn't figure out why. And we did a little bit of research. And one is the API guidelines don't say use 2.6. They say use whatever the formation is. You know, in, mm -hmm. in, if you drill into a pure carbonate formation, it's 2.7, 2.8. Um, but what we what we did see was um, you're drilling through carriage, right? In, in the horizontal, you're drilling through an, an oil-rich material. And not only that, but it, it makes very, very fine solids that get readily retained within the uh, within the system. And so the solids in that case are actually lighter than 2. Um, mm. and so, you know, we know that, you know, in the vertical sections are probably 2.6 is probably okay. Um, I've seen some folks say that they think that those specific gravity, those is the horizontal, the, you know, the, the unconventional, you know, the wolf camp, whatever is, is more like two. I think that's a little low that, you know, the problem is none of it's hundred percent carriage. None of it's hundred percent hydrocarbon bearing material. Yeah. It's got other stuff in it. Carbonates. It's a mix, so you can't ever be 100% bang on. We just know that, you know, the reason we use the numbers we use is because we know that 2.6 is wrong, 
And we know that, you know, using a slightly lower number is actually giving us very reliable readings in the formation. Right. Uh, is that, so, so is that why oftentimes we'll find when you send mud from the field to the lab that you may get a different reading? Well, our of- labs know better. Um, now, I mean, this is part of the trick. So this is one of the, one of the big frustrations is you can send me, you can send a butt out to a third party lab and, you know, people say, oh, well, there, that's the ultimate decider. Well, um, quite honestly, most third party labs don't run much checks every day and they're not very good at it. They might have the equipment, but I tend to find that we have to go back and forth several times to correct them or point out that their equipment's out of calibration. Um, and they don't like to talk about the mistakes they made when they're charging the rates they charge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, I mean, look, if, if anybody with a third party lab is out there, I'm happy to tell you the common mistakes I see. Um, I think the criticism is the criticism is fair, but please don't take it personally. I'm not talking about you, your lab. I'm talking about <laughs> every other lab. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's something we very consistently see. And so we say, you know what, give us, let's use the raw data. So we're always, we're all calculating the same thing. What did you get for your coin? What did you get for your initial market? What did you get? You know, we had one where they were, we were showing, you know, eight or 9% low gravity solids and they came back to 15%. Um, oh, wow. you know, insanely different. Like that's way outside any honest error. And it was because they didn't properly mix the sample. And so they got a much heavier mud weight than us. Um, and then they reweighted and lo and behold, we were, you know, within a couple of percentage of each other on our load. Um, so, uh, you know, though, all of those things can totally throw you off. Um, and this error, because you're multiplying and making assumptions and stuff, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that's the big knock and frustration. And when we, when we take this through with customers, um, you know, by the end of this conversation, they're like, why do we even run the region? Um, and I like, for me personally, I think it's a worthwhile tool. And the fact is that you maintain trends, you're consistent, you do the best you can. You do get relatively reliable readings. But expecting that, you know, when I report 7.6 low gravity solids and expecting somebody right next to them using the same equipment comes up with 8.6, that they're wrong or incompetent or incapable, um, that's not an appropriate way to look at this tool. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just being honest with yourself, um, you know, and minimizing the errors. I, I've seen a number of times, uh, you know, if, you, if you're drilling with really, really hot flow line temperatures, um, you know, and you, you don't let the mud cool and you report the mud weight um, or, or that, or even let the mud cool to load your cell, you're going to be off all your metric load. That stuff all gets extrapolated. Um, you know, not getting all your air out of a cell. I think that's a, that's a common one, but. Um, there's a, there's a number of ways to do this wrong and there's enough error in it already that if you don't do the basics, right. Um, it's gonna, it's gonna look really bad. That's mm. kind of my opinion. Right. Right. No, that's, uh, I mean, that's a good point and I appreciate you elaborating on that. Um, you know, you mentioned obviously some, some potential errors or, or things that we need to consider. Uh, you know, say with third-party labs or, or just, you know, it, it labs in general, right? But what would you say are some of the problems or some of the challenges that we face, um, you know, at the rig site uh, with, the, with just, just the testing that we do, you know, at a minimum twice a day, sometimes more depending on the operation. But, uh, 
what are some of the things that we need to be uh, th that we need to be cautious of or take into consideration at the rig site? I mean, I, I think being as accurate as you can, as I mentioned, I think making sure you take your mud weights at, you know, at, at cool temperature, at 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, fill your cell when the mud is cool at 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, I know for me personally, when I go pull a mud sample, very for, you know, I just want to get that mud check over with. Like, I think of especially the morning report. Um, I know that my next chance to eat breakfast and maybe get another nap in is when that report is submitted to the company. Mm -hmm. And so I'm fixated on getting that done. But no, let the mud cool. Make sure you got a good mud weight. Make sure everything um, is consistent. Um, and, you know, I, I think that the consistency part, even in your tech traces, calling your endpoints, all, all those things, just, just making sure you're doing the same thing from one day to the next will help you keep a trend. And then when you see a trend drift, that's when you treat the mud, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and in the lab, I think the lab almost always is going to read higher. Uh, and uh, I, I don't want to, I don't forget to mention this. So one thing they'll do in the lab that we can't really do in the field is they do what's called the ground metric. So instead of taking the mud weight, they weigh everything. So you fill up the, you, you know, you fill up a little cup with mud, they weigh that. And they weigh the whole, you know, receiver and everything after so that they can actually calculate if my initial weight was this of the liquid I put into it and my final weight of those liquids that came out and the solids and all that don't add up, I lost some stuff to evaporation. I, you know, something happened. Um, and so, you know, one thing you do, calibrate your equipment. Uh, like those, those thermostats, they drift. Uh, yeah. So, you know, even just burning a retort with oil and saying, okay, do I get 100%? Do I get 98%? Do I get something less? Because, you know, if it's, I, I don't remember the, the standard, but it's 97 or 98%. If you lose any more of that to evaporation, um, you, you probably need to get uh, the equipment service. Okay. So that's good to know. Um, so you mentioned propagation of error with regards to like chloride endpoint, you know, mud weight reading, stuff like that. Is there, is there much air that you see? I mean, obviously each mud engineer is pretty consistent on the way that they call endpoint and how they read things, but do you typically see a swing between people doing them or is it, is it for the most part, are people's, you know, margin of error relatively small, depending on, you know, maybe their experience or can you touch on that a little bit? I mean, I think folks are consistent enough, right? It's just, Let's say it's crew change day and low gravity solids switch by one and a half or two percent. You know, it, it, you're like, oh, what happened to you? Right. Um, it maybe you went from, you know, you may not have hit some sort of a limit or anything, but it's it's a higher number than you saw before. And is it solid control or is it, you know, what could be? Um, I, I think most, I mean, at least from what I've seen, most of our engineers are pretty, pretty consistent. Um, but if you're being really honest with, uh, you know, what, what you call the, you can do mathematical propagation of error. You can look at, let's say on a mud scale, think about what you call significant figures, right? So it reads every 10th of a pound per gallon. So yeah. arguably if I have a nine one mud weight, same reason we, you know, nine one heavy versus, you know, nine one, that sort of thing, right? Um, nine one heavy is, is, is actually me saying, okay, 
I can see the graduations to 9-1, and I know it's less than 9-2, which is the other mark. So I, but I can guess in, in kind of significant figures and, uh, you know, laboratory method, I can guess a number in between there of what I think it actually is. Um, and my error is plus or minus between those two bars. Um, so think about that with the titration endpoint, and that assumes you're calling your endpoint the same color, yeah. uh, which is very difficult to quantify, right? Yeah. So we just say, okay, well, I'm, I'm talking about how much silver nitrate I added, plus or minus, uh, you know, a tenth of the middle or whatever it is. Um, and then you go, so that's my chlorides. And then you go to trying to read that J2. Is it, you know, if I read 2%, you know, is it, is it 68% or is it 66%? Then with fix 67. So, you know, there's an error band there, plus or minus. Mm-hmm. And the problem is you're multiplying all these numbers together. And then, you know, if you're running a, you know, a 20 mil retort, you're extrapolating that up to 350 mils to get final number. Right. So it's, it's just, um, numbers get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and I, I think, uh, there's only so much you can do about that. And, and the point I'm trying to make in way too many words is, uh, someone can be very honestly checking a retort and doing everything correct and spit all over their shoulder. And still probably drift on their low gravity solids as much as like three percent either way. Um, now those would be pretty extreme, right? I'd have to read the lowest possible mud weight, run the lowest possible chloride titration, run the lowest possible of everything. Yeah, read the highest of everything. But it's it wouldn't be it wouldn't be considered erroneous. It would be within that area. Understood. Okay. No, I appreciate you elaborate on that. I think for a lot of people, there's certainly some question there. Hopefully we'll be able to answer that. Um, let's talk about safety, Matt, because there's a few you know, moments there where you mentioned about things blowing up and, you know, a thousand degrees Fahrenheit, which sounds like a pretty serious environment. So how do we really, you know, um, mitigate those types of things from happening or, you know, from things happening and, and, and sort of de-risk this type of test? So, I mean, one of the main things is clean your equipment. Uh, I think, you know, that's first and foremost, um, you know, and, and honestly, you hear these horror stories of retorts blowing up and, and that sort of thing. And I hope it never happens to you or anyone around you. Thank you. Um, you know, that, that is the, the most serious where you could have, um, let's say you have some, some black powder material, for example, some kind of heavier hydrocarbon material that sort of forms a car in the, uh, in the body of that, that, uh, retort, um, especially in that stem that could accumulate if you don't clean it out. That's what all the tech cleaners, and the, the, you know, the, uh, the key drill and, and all that, um, that's what that's there. For. Um, you know, similarly, don't forget the steel wool and granted, I think, I, I don't know if I've ever done it. I, you know, I'm better at talking about things other people did wrong, but uh, <laughs> I'll say that, uh, uh, you know, I've definitely seen it where you forgot to steal wool, right? And you're like, what the heck is coming out the other side of this? Uh, yeah. <laughs> put the equipment off. The risk may be low one time, but, but you can't, you can't leave all that stuff. In. It's, it's, uh, it can be bad. So yep. you know, the other thing is warm mates. Um, I've heard fables of formates run to full temperature have risk of, of exploding. So we're running formate grinds. That's good um, to know. And they say not to run it, 
Um, it's always kind of one of those that comes up, but um, the formate people who only sell formate brine say they've never been able to replicate that. And don't know through it. Yeah, of course. Um, uh, you know, they might be biased, but they also know more about it than anybody else. So, yeah, what it is. Um, you know, I, I mean, the heat thing is the part that worries me the most just because, um, well, one, we know when we're done, we want to clean it, which means everybody wants to, instead of waiting for it to be cool enough and safe to handle, they want to get it into the sink and bathe in a bunch of steam as they try and cool it. Yeah. Um, We'd rather you not do that, you know, just get it in an area with by a fan or something, let it cool. Right. Um, and the other part is, of course, I think I've seen plenty of mud engineers take it outside back by the trailer, you know, sit by the grating or something. Most people don't know what that is, and they don't know that you just set it out there and that it could be 700 degrees. So right. leaving it unattended to cool outside on a you know metal gratings, um, there's better ways to do that. I'll say yeah. that. But what, you ever, you, what would you say? I mean, I, as far as other safety things, I mean, to, the most common is just the temperature. You know, you get going and you're in a rush, and all of a sudden you think it's cold. And I mean, I know I've touched it, and it's given me singed some some of my fingerprint off. I mean, it's, I you know, you got a thousand things going on, and um, it may be by accident. Sometimes you bump it, but I think you know, for the most part, I think the people that you know, you really need to be cautious about the temperature of it. Um, and I don't know personally anyone who's, who's, you know, had it blow up, but, but the fact of the matter is it's, it's a conversation that at least needs to be had because there is potential for that to happen. And um, I think any, with any lab equipment, I think cleaning it and being very diligent with cleaning it can, uh, you know, drastically prevent a lot of things from happening. Uh, so yeah, I, I really don't have much else. And um, I mean, <laughs> a few glassware, think about it. Like, I don't know. Yeah, that too. What's, uh, so graduated cylinders are easier to get a hold of, but the, the J tube normally hangs up in that sort of springy receiver. Yeah. And I will confess to breaking more than one. Oh yeah. Trying to get it out there and you know, you break off that fluted part. And of course you, that may be the only one you have. And then you think about, well, I'll just get by with this one until my field suit can bring out another one. And that's a great way to cut your fingers the next time you try and so, yes, that's very common too. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, that's, <clears throat> if, that's honestly probably the most common thing I've encountered. Yeah, no, that's very true. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, using the plastic ones, I don't think is very. I, I just think there's a lot of room for error there, and you can't necessarily read it as well. So definitely go with the glass. Uh, and then you know, with the heat, if you're in the Great White North, you can toss that bad boy in the snow. That would be the only other reason. I don't suggest it, but if for some reason you're in a rush, that may be something you could consider. Um, but uh, I've never done that, so we'll see. But nonetheless, uh, it, it's just things that certainly need to be taken into consideration. Uh, Matt, you know, it's, it's kind of wrap all this up. Um, you know, what I guess what are some of the positives and, you know, to, you know, you know, why use it? Like, what ultimately, what's what's the reason here? I mean, obviously, with the properties we've mentioned, but, uh, you know, c can you elaborate more on, like, why this piece of equipment particularly is why the oil field has adopted it for these purposes? I mean, uh, it, I think there's that there's, there's two sides to it, right? So I, I think you and I have said, man, you know, that oil field is way too conservative and it takes too long to adopt. Things. And, you know, give me a break. Why are we using, you know, stone age pieces of equipment to do these things? And, um, I think the answer in this case is that it's just, it's worked over time. 
Um, we know it's not the best. We also know that there is precision equipment available. But from my experience, a lot of them, um, you know, you go back to the whole automation thing, right? If, if somebody told me for $800 a day, they could give me an automatic report. I can't imagine anybody willing to pay for that Yeah. when, you know, they're already paying for a Medicare to be out there. You know, it would have to be part of a system solution um, that actually, you know, added, that took you further than just one part of a budget. Um, but there are some probes and other things in the works that I, I think probably need a bit of work, uh, but, but maybe show some promise someday, especially if they became portable. Um, but uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's like we were talking about at the beginning. You never read one property in isolation. Okay. We know that when my low gravities go up, I'm going to see a higher viscosity. I'm probably going to see some dilation. I'm going to see other properties affected. Fluid loss should go up. Um, it's not, you know, low gravity solids in and of themselves aren't what hurt drilling necessarily. Right. It's what they do to the fluid. Um, and that's going to show itself in a few different ways. And um, so, yeah, if, if those things all come together, then we know it, it, in the same way that I wouldn't just check rheology and say we have solved problems with like PV lab. It's, um, it's you know another diagnosis. So I think you know it, it's proven. They're out there, available, relatively inexpensive. Probably still cost more than they should, but um, you know they're pretty durable. There's not a ton of maintenance, uh, and so I, I think it's this you know. The same reason we probably talked about this in the past too, and, and I'm probably getting long winded here, but I remember when we had digital viscometers on every rig when I worked, and we had to carry so many extra digital viscometers as inventory whenever one broke or needed calibration because it was sort of service. Okay, and the good old you know six speed or eight speed was so straightforward. All I had to do was look down at a sight glass. Um, I could throw some oil in there and check that it was calibrated. Um, and I could adjust the springs and everything using the handbook without having to worry about circuit boards and other things. And if I'm offshore and space is a limit, do I really need two extra viscometers just in case the one I'm using is likely to break? Right. You know, it, it's just, uh, it was too much trouble. And so until that equipment becomes considerably more reliable and, you know, addressable in the field, you don't want to be left hanging. So I'd say that, that's that's the other thing. Um, but that's a long-winded way to say it works, it's worked for us. I hope we continue to evolve and grow, but um, I understand why we're running it today, even in spite of all of its flaws. <laughs> sure thing. Well, uh, Matt, that's been uh, a pretty exciting episode to talk about retort. Um, we're doing this one on Zoom, and I'm not sure what the time frame is, but I feel like we've we've covered most of it. And I really don't have any other questions or comments with regards to retorts, Matt. Do you? I don't think so. I mean, I, I hope we I hope we offered some clarification or expanded on some things that you know an instrument that a modern engineer uses almost every day. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that it just expanded your knowledge. Of how the thing works and how it works for you. Awesome. We appreciate all your knowledge sharing, Matt, as always. And anyone out there has any questions, hit us up at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com or you can hit us up on LinkedIn. Matt and I are on there quite regularly. So um, yeah, do us a favor again. If 
we'd love to support, uh, you know, uh, please support the show by leaving a review, um, sharing it, liking it. And until next time, everyone, be safe out there. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.